What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray here inside the War Room. Josh Chen, the Deputy Bureau Chief for China for the Wall Street Journal, is our guest today. He's got a new book out talking about surveillance state in China. And of course, China is a great topic on this podcast and all across the world. We see we see the numbers are really, really big when we do China. So we're going to link to his full bio in the show notes. And the book, of course, is called Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Without further ado, let's welcome Josh to the war room. Thanks. It's a, uh, it's a huge pleasure to be here. Okay. So let's get into it. Let's talk China. One of the favorite things to talk on the podcast. What got you interested in covering China professionally? Oh man, that's a that, that that's a bit of a long story. I'm I'm actually I'm half Chinese, so um, I, I went to China for the first time in the early 1990s on a family trip, and uh, and actually, you know, I think what got me really hooked on it was that it was nothing like I expected. You know, I would uh, as a kid, my you know, my grandfather uh, he's from he's from Northern California, and he would take me on trips to San Francisco, and I kind of always imagined like Chinatown in San Francisco is what. China was going to be like as a kid. In fact, when I was really young, I thought San Francisco was China. Um, and, uh, and so the first time we went, it was a family trip, 1991, two years after Tiananmen Square. And uh, it was nothing like San Francisco, right? It was just Stalinist buildings. Everyone was wearing gray or blue. And, you know, there were donkey carts on the highway, no businesses or restaurants, anything like that. And I think it was just that that uh, clash between expectation and reality that really, um, really intrigued me. And so I just, as, uh, as I got older and became a journalist, it just felt like the sort of place that, uh, that I needed to kind of dig into and, and try to understand. Okay. So you mentioned Tiananmen just real quick, um, you know, modern, if you went to China today um, and you talk to someone probably my age, I'm 37, they probably wouldn't know Tiananmen square, at least the way that we would uh, two years after were people talking about it? Was it a thing that came up um, at all? Well, I, I mean, I was 14 years old at the time, so I wasn't asking too many people that question. But I do, I do distinctly remember the atmosphere, and it was, um, it was tense. You know, it was just, it was tight, and uh, and I could, you know, I was a teenager, so whatever. But um, but you know, I definitely got you. You had this feeling at the time that, that things were really closed down. Um, clamped down and uh, there wasn't a lot of discussion going on. Okay. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was to ask you this question. I was in China in um, November of 2019. Okay. And so, and so I'll let you oh, figure out that time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time to be um, yeah. And we're sitting around a table and uh, it's a handful of media members and myself and then our, um, our translators, but they were really kind of our guides as well. Um, and we're talking about the Chinese surveillance state. And one of them said, it's not as if one of the, one of the translators said, it's not as if they can listen to everything that we do. And I, I remember distinctly going, and they, they, they probably can, <laughs> they probably can probably are. They're probably doing it right now. Like that was probably the trip <laughs> for them to listen to us even more intensely. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. Can they listen to everything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the answer is yes, uh, if they want to, right? Like if you're on the list, if you you attract their attention for some reason, uh, they can they can essentially know anything they want to know about you. They can know 
um, where you've gone, where you're, where you've been, they can sort of predict where you're going. Uh, they can listen to what you're talking to. Uh, they can listen to what you're saying rather. And, uh, and they, they, they know who you're talking to. Uh, and the, you know, the trick about the surveillance state in China and probably surveillance states everywhere is that you actually never know when they're listening. And that's sort of the point, right? The point is, um, you know, you just, everyone knows they can be listened to at every moment mm. and that affects their behavior. And, you know, this is one of those things that I, I got, when I was there as a journalist, I, I was kind of constantly in the back of your head and you, you had to sort of, um, you know, it was like a little devil on your shoulder saying they're watching you and you had to kind of shut it up. Right. You had to kind of try to ignore it because otherwise right. you couldn't do your job, but it, but it's always there. Yeah. Yeah. I bet, I bet that is tough as a journalist because I don't know when, when did you leave China? Uh, so I left in actually not too long after you were there, uh, early 2020, I was, I was actually expelled. I was the first of, uh, I was the first of a, more than a dozen American reporters who were, who were kicked out or I was among the first, uh, of, of a bunch of reporters who got kicked out as part of a media war yeah. uh, between, between China and the U S but I was, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I had been in China at that point for more than, more than, more than a decade. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, because in 2020 and 2021, you started seeing uh, arrest and journalists going to jail and, and the CCP saying that these weren't journalists. They were really state operative spies and stuff. And um, yeah, it was definitely a, an interesting and, and I'm sure a very scary time to be a journalist. And so, um, yeah, what, what's that process like? Just just trying to figure out what you can print versus what you can't print. I mean, right. I, I guess it's a right. constant just battle of of trying to tell a story but also knowing that is it really worth going to jail over this story yeah yeah you know i mean that's how that's you know that, that's something that like every reporter i think who spent a long time in, in, in china wrestles with and they're wrestling with it more now because the pressure um and, and the restrictions have just gotten more intense over the years uh and, you know the good thing about working for a foreign news organization is that um you know we can print anything we want about china uh, and we, and we do, you know, we print, we print whatever, um, you know, we re- we report stories and, and that we think are interesting or valuable and we, and we publish them. Um, and, and, you know, generally we, we kind of do that, even though we know that we could get blowback for it. Um, but it is, you know, it's tricky. And, um, you know, I think, you know, the good thing if you're a foreigner is the worst thing that can happen to you is what happened to me, which is you get expelled, right? They haven't, they haven't actually, they've arrested, they've arrested Chinese journalists. Definitely. They have not arrested uh, so far any foreign reporters, uh, which is. Didn't they, but didn't they arrest those, those, uh, that reporter from Australia or New Zealand? Uh, no, well, no, they, they, there were some reporters from Australia who fled. Uh, because okay. they got word okay. that they might be, uh, that okay. they might be targeted. Yeah. So there's, no, there's definitely a lot of pressure and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to underplay that at all. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, the people who take the real risks are the Chinese journalists and, and the Chinese people working for, for foreign media. And so that's kind of where it gets a little tricky, right? Because you have, you know, every foreign news organization has Chinese employees, and uh, so you as a foreign reporter, you might be fine. You might, you know, they expel you. It's probably good for your career, actually, to get expelled from China. But um, but you do have to kind of worry about, you know, the Chinese people you work with and the, and the Chinese people you talk to because they they are really uh, vulnerable. Yeah. Maybe maybe we should unpack that a, a smidge here. Um, the security laws, I think it's in 2020, they rolled out, which 
basically, you're, you're the expert here, so help me clarify, but my understanding is basically China now believes or says that they have jurisdiction over the galaxy. You know, they can, you, you can violate a law, me and you could violate the law right here, right now, and the next time we go to China, uh, potentially be in trouble, but their citizens for sure can violate their law um, anywhere in the world. And so they kind of have this this ability to crack down if they can get governments to cooperate cooperate with them anywhere in the world. Is, is, is that a proper understanding? Is that close? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think they're doing, you know, they do what actually what a lot of superpowers do, right? Which is they, you know, they want to impose their influence internationally and outside their borders. And they really are, um, you know, they are doing things, you know, one of the things they've done that's, that's really interesting, they've been trying to make a lot of use of the Interpol system, you know, the international police system, mm-hmm. um, which is, and, and, and one of the things that Interpol does is it issues red notices, right? For, for fugitives from countries that have who've fled abroad. And China has really made a, a, a huge use of red notices, trying to get people, its own citizens who've left China, trying to claw them back. Um, they've also been doing things that are, you know, really interestingly in the United States and other countries where they've been sending their own operatives, their own sort of security uh, officials to the U.S. and to other countries to track down Chinese citizens um, who they who they want to bring back and to sort of basically intimidate them um, into 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 coming back. So so China is definitely extending the Communist Party, I should say, is is definitely extending its reach outside of China's borders and trying to trying to impose its its rules. So where did they get the technology to do this? Well, so yeah, the technology is interesting, right? Because uh, so yeah, you know the 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 one of the really innovative things that the Communist Party is doing in China, uh, best way to put it, is making use of so cutting edge AI driven surveillance technology in a way that no other government is doing, and uh, they've been you know I mean all governments use surveillance, right? The United States does it. I mean, going all the way back to ancient Rome, you know, uh, governments have always been collecting information on their, on their populations, right? It's nothing new, but what's new in China is just the immense scale of what they're doing, right? They, they're, they're collecting data on a, on a level that's just never really been seen before. Uh, And then they're applying technologies, really sort of futuristic technologies to that data to sort of use it to, to exert control, on, on the Chinese population. Um, and what's really fascinating is a lot of that technology and a lot of those techniques actually come from the United States. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff was invented in Silicon Valley. So, uh, Google, you know, YouTube, the way that you get served ads, you know, on, or, or served new videos on YouTube, that's all surveillance, right? That's basically Google, collecting data about the way that you search the internet, what you're interested in, what you buy, um, and using that data um, to predict what you might be interested in, right? Next, what you want to see next. And that, so that's basically, that basic technology was invented in Silicon Valley and perfected there. And now China is sort of using it, not in a commercial way, not to sell ads, but but to, uh, to control society. So the motivation... Is it only, I mean, obviously Xi Jinping's probably not calling you, I don't suspect, but if he is, feel free to tell us about that. But but is the motivation yeah. only negative? Is there any pure motivation to what they're doing? Can we look at this and go, okay, um, yeah, this yeah. is mainly bad, but there is some good. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the, you know, the really fascinating and, and difficult and, and, and tricky thing about the way that the Communist Party is, is, is implementing this new surveillance state is that, yes, there, it is extremely dystopian in some respects, right? If you go out to, um, you know, the far northwestern part of the country, this region called Xinjiang, you know, the way the Communist Party is using technology there, they're, they're targeting minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, and they're trying to essentially re-engineer their identities. You know, they're, they're tracking everyone out there. They're categorizing them. They're, they're using uh, data analysis to predict who will resist Communist Party rule. And then they're sending those people to internment camps where they undergo political re-education, which is, you know, as Big Brother Orwellian as it gets, right? Um, but, you know, in other parts of the country, you know, if you go to wealthy Chinese dominated cities, the way these technologies are playing out is is they're making life more convenient. They're making life easier, right? They're using the same, literally the exact same technologies built by the same companies. Uh, but instead of using them to oppress people, they're using them to make traffic flow better. They're using them to make healthcare more efficient. Uh, they're, you know, they're using them to make, to make life just more predictable and easy. And, Ultimately, you know, the Communist Party vision is of a perfectly engineered society, right? And so this is a society in which uh, they have so much data and the right tools to analyze it that they can kind of predict human behavior around the country and they can predict problems before they arise and solve those problems. And they can essentially, you know, deliver a life for you that is like totally predictable and easy and convenient. And so you have nothing to complain about. And that's their vision. So, you know, if, and, and, and there are people who kind of are totally happy to live in a society like that. Right. You know, like, um, the, you know, we talked to not just Chinese people, but people outside of China who are like, yeah, actually, no, not so bad. Right. Like everything's taken care of. You know, what's wrong with that? Uh, I mean, I, I think this is going to be the whether it's in China or the U.S. or, or wherever the big debate over the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, we drive through. I live just south of Dallas-Fort Worth, and so if you go up there, you're like, there's not a better way to manage this traffic. There's there's not a better way. Like, right. we can't do something, you know, advise people we, something. Uh, you know, there's nothing. Change the HOV rate so people go, uh, whatever. Um, and uh, obviously some of that there is just at some point to me cars. It doesn't matter. But um, where I live is a small town. It's like, man, you can just tell that the lights sometimes aren't synced up right, which is a simple right. thing to fix, you know, and so – there's a lot of things that technology can do to improve our lives. Um, the question in the West, of course, is, is what would that information be used for? Um, and then, you know, you know, are you, you know, who is working together? And so you mentioned, you know, you know, Google, um, you know, it's kind of how they monitor us. I don't think, I think this is you know pretty pedestrian point at this point, but, you know, when Facebook first came out, most people didn't realize that they were the product, right? They're, they're the, yeah. they're the target. Like, you know, you're, you're, yeah, they're, yeah. they're the one, you know, you're, you're the, you're the mark there. Um, now I think everyone kind of gets the joke, but we still use those things. And we're still not sure. Um, whereas on the Chinese side of things, I think they kind of have always been more, I guess the, the, the average citizen, if you will, has probably been more receptive to that mentality um, and so the dynamics probably feel a lot different if you were to ask them about a surveillance state because how they feel about their government um, and what they think they even can say is probably makes it tougher to read on, you know, are, are they okay with this surveillance or not? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I mean, that's um, you know, that was one of the really fascinating experiences when we, when I, my my co-author and I started looking into this um, was that you know we you know of course we like we started looking at this technology we're like this is kind of, this is crazy and so obviously the first thing we did was start asking Chinese people what they thought of it right and you know a lot of Chinese people were like well whatever you know the government already knows everything every anyway right um, this just makes them more efficient or this just you know if they have better technology it's better for us right and and if you haven't done anything wrong you've got nothing to worry about right and and so many people said that last line to us uh, that you know, um, and I was living in Beijing at the time. So I was just like, oh, that's, well, that's the Chinese attitude. That's the Chinese response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really common. But what was, you know, was fascinating was I was, remember I was in the U.S. Uh, I'd gone to New York. I was doing some reporting in New York for the book. And I was at JFK getting ready to fly back to China. I'm standing in line at the airport in the security line. And there's this couple up ahead of me. And they, and the woman is like, oh, you know, I saw the story about state surveillance in China. It's crazy. Everything they know about people and, you know, like all this AI and facial recognition, all this, it's wild. And her husband turns around and looks at her. And he's like, well, if you haven't done anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? Exactly. And, and I was like, oh my God, that's not a Chinese attitude. That's like a huge, that's a human attitude. Right. And, and, or potentially a human attitude. And so, so I think it's, I think you're right in the sense that Yes, Chinese people are pretty receptive to this. And I don't think there's a Chinese person out there who's so naive that they don't realize the government knows tons about them, right? And that's just to, to grow up in China is to understand that, right? Um, you know, but the attitudes or the sort of the mental gymnastics that people do to kind of accept that, that's not, a, it's not a uniquely Chinese thing, right? I think a lot of people globally, and one of the reasons I got really interested in this topic is that it is the sort of thing that, creeps up on you just like it's the exact same way that facebook crept up on all of us right mm-hmm. this idea that we're the product none of us we didn't know that right we were right. just like oh this is cool this is like i can connect with my friends i can put photos up here this is great right. and uh and so i think you know we're now in the state government-led version of that right where governments are acquiring these technologies and i think the same sort of dynamic is uh yeah uh, at play yeah um one of the things that's come up on this podcast multiple times now is my true disdain for the fact that it is a felony to even mistakenly lie to a fed. I can't stand that. I think it's a complete violation of the first amendment and I will die on that heel. No two ways about it. Um, you, first off, you, you should be able to lie legally. And second of all, you should be able to lie mistakenly. It goes into the fifth amendment, all, all kinds of other stuff. It's, it's just, it's nonsensical. Um, and yet you will hear people go, well, I mean, you know, you know, it's like, well, well hold on. First off, who determines what a lie is? When you actually ask that question, that's 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 not exactly as clear cut as we make it, make it out to be. There's some things. Did you buy this new truck? Yes or no? Okay, that's quite a clear, clear cut. But there's plenty of other things that are that are not exactly were you trying to lie when you when you answer the question. Um, it's clear. And, and to me, that's one of those things to where you think about surveillance, you know, government and how and how it interacts. Um, the average citizen in the West, at least in America, they, they kind of go along with some of that. But the other thing I've noticed is, I'm curious your thoughts on this, is to your point about if you haven't done anything wrong, my read, it seems, on the on, on the average American is, it depends on who's in government. So if you're a big Republican and Trump's in, then the FBI is good. If you're a Democrat and, the FBI, and, and Trump's in, the, the FBI is corrupt. And then it just, it just flops when Biden's in for the Republicans. And so part of this trust seems to be very politically based. So we kind of trust these institutions when quote our person is in. And so I, I don't feel, I, I would suspect in China, that's probably not um, the same because it's just, it's a one party state. 
that you know that's it's true but it's um but but actually the dynamic is similar right in the sense that um it's all about your relationship to that party right like and you know some people uh, can start out and I'm sure, you know, Americans have the same relationship with their own parties, right? They start out liking a party and then all of a sudden they decide they don't like that party anymore. And in China, right. uh, you know, the consequences are a little bit heavier. Um, but, you know, like, um, you know, there's one, there's one city that we wrote about in our, in our book, which is um, Hangzhou, which is this, uh, you know, really nice, you know, scenic beautiful city on the coast it's kind of close to shanghai it has a really famous lake it's been you know marco polos i think might have gone there anyway there were like you know people have been there and 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 sort of extolled this this what a what a, what a sort of heaven on earth this place is and it's also you know in the, in the present day a kind of tech hub right it's home mm-hmm. to alibaba which is which some people may have heard of which is a big chinese mm-hmm. e-commerce company and also to it's home to these uh uh two of the world's largest uh, surveillance camera makers uh, and you know, but this is a city where this is a city where they have kind of the digital utopia, right? Where they have they've they've used technology to optimize traffic, right? They have a system there that's really amazing. Where they like if you if you're in an ambulance, uh, you get picked up, you're sick, you need to get to a hospital. The ambulance can flip a switch, and they have so much data and a system that controls traffic so that it can basically make sure that you have green lights all the way through. Oh, and it cuts, you know, cuts travel time to, to a, to a hospital in half. Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so it's like life-saving kind of technology and people, so people love it. Right. Of course you do. Right. Like who doesn't want technology that, that, that saves their lives. You know, there's another system they have there that kind of automatically um, spots like street violations, you know, like litter or like mm-hmm. an illegally parked car or like an illegal vendor. And it, it automatically it's, it's like has cameras that are trained to recognize those things and then send alerts to, to, to um, like urban enforcement officials who will clean things up. Right. Mm-hmm. So the streets are clean, you know, ambulances go really quickly uh, through traffic. But, you know, what's really fascinating is I know, you know, from re- just reporting there is that the people who most of the people who live in that city are pretty happy, but, one thing that happens in China often because they have so much construction is that often the government will come in and will just take your house, right? Mm-hmm. They'll be like, we want to build a high-speed rail line and it's going to come through here. And uh, and here's the amount of money we're prepared to offer you. And it's usually below market, right? And just, right. and so like, and I can, you can be anyone, right? You don't have to be like, you know, that can happen to anyone. If, if your house is in the wrong spot, like you, you might be screwed. And so all of a sudden you, you like one day you might be loving the system in, in Hangzhou. I <laughs> you know, think it's great. Traffic's gotten better. Streets are clean. And the next day your house is getting knocked down. You're not getting enough money and you're opposed to the government and you start protesting. Well, now you're a target of that surveillance system. Right. And so now that system, now that the system that was making your life better is now making it much worse. And I think that that's like a, that's a dynamic that happens, you know, in different ways in different countries. Um, so in the U.S., yeah, your attitude towards surveillance might change depending on who's in office. Uh, in China, it might change depending on how you feel about the Communist Party. Uh, but, you know, um, and it, it also depends on who you are. Right. In, in China, like if you're a if you're a minority, uh, if you're an ethnic minority uh, who, who right. has religious beliefs, then you're a target. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so like whereas if you're a Han Chinese person who who's a you know, communist party member in good standing, you're probably not a target, right? So it all kind of depends on who you are, uh, what you believe, you know, what your circumstances are, whether you feel good about state surveillance or not a lot of the time. 
Yeah, and for those who haven't followed the Uyghur story, um, an early episode around twenty somewhere, we had on Sean Roberts on the war on the Uyghurs. Okay. So we'll link we'll link okay. to that in the show notes for people to go check it out if they're not familiar with. Yeah, Sean's great. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned this kind of good and bad. I'm reminded of Star Trek, right? So especially the, the next generation, which is, you know, they bring down a sick bay, they can do all this stuff. But once you become an enemy of the ship or the or the the crew, they can track you as well. So it's kind of that same dynamic, which is yeah. all of this stuff can be used to save your life, to transport you from here to there. But also when they want to track you down, you have to go through leaps and bounds to disable the system to escape. And so it, it's very much that, that kind of good and bad that you see yeah. play out. And that's what makes it probably so hard for the citizen to go, okay, well, if I was having a heart attack and you're telling me you could turn all the lights green and save my life. And the risk on the bad side is, is that I get sideways with the government. Well, I don't do anything to get sideways with, with the government. So I want to take that risk. Whereas someone who's a little bit more of a dissident might be like, <laughs> I'll die in the ambulance. before." Yeah. You know? And so I think as an individualistic um it's probably hard for people to determine where they want that level of trust and surveillance to go. Because if you take the ambulance example, which is a wonderful one, that is a coordination in the U S it would be at least between private company and the government, because the private company is changing the government, the state's lights to get them to work. Uh, and obviously in China, it's, this can be different. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a fascinating example of how that can go. Um, Both ways. Yeah. I mean, the life and death thing is really, I mean, you know, you know, this is actually a, yeah, we have a real life example of how this plays out, which is COVID, right? Um, and you're starting to see this in China now, but like, um, you know, uh, COVID was sort of, um, you know, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. We, when we started writing this book, we were like, you know, this is in kind of 2018. We're like, oh, what are we going to do for the last chapter? And we're like, you know, what was the most significant event in the, in the sort of history of surveillance? And actually one of them was 9-11. Right. Because 9-11 brought the Patriot Act, basically created the global market for digital surveillance, you know, because the American military was spending money on it. So like all these companies started developing tools for it. And uh, and so we're like, well, what would happen if there was another 9-11 level event somewhere <laughs> with the technology at the stage that it's at now? Right. We're like, oh, like, well, We'll have to write some sort of hypothetical chapter. We're going to have to like imagine this scenario. And then lo and behold, we get COVID-19, right? And it, and it was like 9-11 times 10 more, right? I mean, it's global. It's this global event, life-threatening global event that really upended people's assumptions about a lot of things. And we're like, how are people going to react? And it was fascinating, you know, I mean, to, to, because these are the these are choices that societies and governments have to make. Right. And, and so in China, they went they had the system in place and they put it and they used it to the full extent. Right. And so now, you know, in China, uh, every single person is monitored. Like, like all, you know, their movements are monitored all the time. They have an app. It's a health, it's called a health code. It's on their smartphone. And it tracks where you've been and it tracks who you've been in touch with, you know, whether you've been in a city that had an, an infection, whether you've been in, in touch, whether you've been in the proximity of someone who was infected or a close contact of that person. And it will give you a rating and a, a code, a color, color code based on your COVID risk exposure, right? And that code will determine where you can go, whether you can leave your apartment, whether you can go into a mall, all that sort of stuff. And that's 1.4 billion people being tracked all the time. And 
And, you know, which is, which is pretty wild. And they, you know, they were closing down, you know, cities where, where COVID outbreaks happened, they would close down um, entire uh, residential compounds, right? So you could only, so there's only one exit in, in and out, right? And these are, these are huge compounds. I mean, if you're an American, it's kind of hard to imagine how big these are unless you've it's been It's impossible in, you know, to imagine. Yeah. They're massive, right? You know, like an entire, like an entire small, like my entire hometown in Utah fits inside of one of these residential compounds, right? There's just massive amounts of people and, and they're blocking off all of the entrances, but one, and they're tracking everyone who comes and goes, right. And they, and, you know, and, and so this is like, you know, people's lives are being controlled in a way that is just unimaginable, would have been unimaginable five years ago, three years ago. Mm -hmm. But a lot of Chinese people are okay with that because COVID hasn't, been that bad in China, right? I mean, they've, you know, even if you, even if you're doubtful about China's numbers, um, if you look at hospitals, the hospitals that have not been over, were not being overrun after Wuhan, right? And, and, and so even if you feel like maybe there's the numbers are a little fuzzy around the edges, China did much better in controlling COVID than in than almost any other country. And so, you know, whereas like, and, and that actually held true with a lot of other places, you know, there were other South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore also used a lot of surveillance uh, in response to COVID. And they, and in all of those places, the COVID numbers were not as bad, right? And so it was a real life and death sort of situation. And now, you know, it's interesting now in China because with Omicron, Omicron moves too fast for surveillance to track it, basically. And so now they've had to use, they've kind of turned, they've gone, the, the government has gone from tracking the virus to using surveillance to lock people down um, and just kind of keep them in their homes because they just, because they can't track the virus otherwise. And so that's, so we're now actually starting to get a little bit of a turn, which is interesting in China. People are getting a little frustrated because uh, they feel like the lockdowns are a little too much. Um, but it is, but COVID really kind of brings all of these questions to the fore. Yeah, so two things on that. One, uh, we'll link to your colleague, Gregory Zuckerman's uh, interview on um, The Shot to Save the World. So he talks about in the book the origins of kind of what they did in China. So we'll link to that uh, interview in the show notes as well. Have you seen the documentary um, In the Same Breath? I have not. I have not, actually. Okay. So it's good. You'd enjoy it. It's it's a Chinese national who lives in America, um, and her, her mom, if I remember correctly, lives in Wuhan. And so she was going back for the new year. And so then she ended up hiring like four documentary, there's four video videographers in Wuhan that were on the ground when it was locked down. And so you get like a real inside perspective of that. Um, and so it's on HBO Max, if the listeners have that, but it's called In the Same Breath. It's a, it's a fascinating look. One of the things that came from that, though, which is part of this larger conversation is there's a lady whose husband dies. Now, I can't remember the exact details, but I think they prevented them from burying the dead in this period for like 60 or 90 days, you might know the exact number. Um, and, and so at the end, she's talking about how she, you know, it upset her. Um, but she understood. And I think she called us the imperialists because I can't remember what it was, but it's, it's been a while, but I think she goes, cause she didn't want the imperialists or the Westerners or whoever it was to denigrate China. And so she was okay with how the government handled it and she's crying and stuff. And I was sitting there watching that and I was struck. I was wondering, okay, is this person believing this or are they afraid to say I got screwed over <laughs> and I don't, you know, I'm really mad about it. And, and that's part of the problem with this debate is 
when you get this level of surveillance is that people are afraid to free, speak freely, but they also might believe it. It's very hard to to uh, d- determine those things. So how do you go about making those determinations or do you just kind of take them at face value? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you really hit on uh, a question that's just core to anyone who's who's been a reporter in China. You know, we all sort of wrestle with this, right? Is it is what are why are people telling you what they're telling you? Right. And what is what are the pressures that are on them? What are the what are their considerations? You know, I mean, in the end, you just kind of have to it's tough. I mean, there's no, there's no good answer, but I mean, you know, ideally what happens is you have a, you, you, you know, in an ideal situation, you can develop a relationship with someone, you know, them over time and they begin to trust you. And then they will sort of tell you what they really think in, you know, in a setting that, that they feel is safe. I mean, and that, and that is getting harder and harder with surveillance. I'll be honest, you know, there's just very few places where you can actually have a, a private conversation in China. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's true. I mean, and you really do. I mean, that's one of the things you learn as a reporter is that you need to gain you need to do extra work to gain people's trust. And which is which is really fascinating coming from the United States, because Americans, they'll tell you they'll tell you everything about themselves personally. Right. Relative, you know, they like if you're you're like you're a journalist, you'd be like, hey, I want to interview interview for a story. You want to tell me tell me what you think. And they'll just they'll tell you your entire life story. The Americans love to talk about themselves in that way, uh, which is great as a journalist. It's fantastic. You know, like Americans have a right. sense of their own lives as stories that should be told uh in china it's really different and you really have to um you know and and because for a lot of reasons some of them are cultural but others are political or technological uh you know that they don't want to they don't want to talk to you openly and so you have to really work through that uh and it's you know it's really tough it's um and you know like as someone living there just my you know my own experience i remember after i got kicked out uh one of the most vivid experiences i've had ever was I, you know, I ended up in, um, in Japan because it was the only country that had open borders at that time in Asia. And, uh, I remember getting to Tokyo, getting off the plane, like putting my bags down in the hotel and just feeling this weight lift off my shoulders. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like, I was like, I, like, I didn't realize I've been living with this. It was like, this, it was paranoia just kind of dissipating this like paranoia I'd lived with for a decade. You know, this idea of like this, this thought in the back of my head of I might be being listened to right now. And I was suddenly gone. And uh, it was a thing I just hadn't thought about you know, really uh, until, until, until I didn't feel it anymore. Mm. Explain to people what WeChat is and how that might be tied yeah. into this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So WeChat is, uh, it is the ultimate um, social media product. Um, it is, a it, it's it's what Mark Zuckerberg uh, and Jeff Bezos and any other tech entrepreneur in the United States wishes they had invented, um, and so it is basically um, it's sort of it started out as a chat app, kind of like WhatsApp, uh, but it is now kind of the everything app, right? So it's 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 how people live. They they obviously they chat with friends, they connect with friends, post photos, that kind of thing. Uh, but that you can, you also use it for paying for things. Uh, it's, it's like a, it has a mobile payment feature. So everything you pay for, you scan a QR code and pay with it. You know, you can, you can invest through it. You know, you can buy, uh, investment products. You can book travel. Um, you can pay your medical bills, uh, all of that stuff, everything, basically anything you need to do in life in China, you can, and, and most people do do through, through WhatsApp and, uh, or sorry, through WeChat, through WeChat. And, uh, and so it is, it is 
from a surveillance point of view, the holy grail, uh, because it combines every kind of behavioral data you could possibly imagine in one place. Um, you know, like if you think about it, like, you know, in the US, you have like Google has a lot of data, but it doesn't have it doesn't know what you spend money on. Right. Amazon knows what you spend money on, but it doesn't know what you search for. Right. Or who you're talking to. Right. Um, WeChat uh, knows all of that. And the government and the Chinese government does have uh, quite easy access to WeChat. You know, in the U.S., like if, you know, I mean, the FBI, if they want if they want to get access to your Amazon records, they probably can if they get a warrant. Right. If sure. they think you're suspicious, they can go to a court and get a warrant and get your information. It's true. But in China, it's just much easier. The government, I mean, essentially, they approve those warrants themselves. Right. And they're not even really warrants. They're just a piece of paper. Somebody signs and then they can get access to that data. And uh, and so it basically means that, you know, sort of everything everyone does in China is essentially open, an open book. Uh, yeah. When, when we were there, um, some of the guys went to get like a, a cab, but it wasn't a cab. I think it was like one of those deals where the guy's pedaling in the front and even yeah. that they had to they, like they offered him money he's like no no i'll get the wechat out and so even the most basic of commerce this was in beijing at least uh, the most basic of commerce yeah. was like through wechat it was crazy yeah. you can't even use cash anymore people don't even take yeah. cash um you know which is great actually because I mean, cash is like the you know i didn't realize this until i started looking into this subject but cash is like the great anti-surveillance tool right because it's untraceable mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. nobody knows, like you, you give, you hand someone a $20 bill, they can't track that. Right. Um, but if yeah. you scan your card, you scan your, your WhatsApp or your WeChat rather than, than you can. So when you think about WeChat and you talk to people about, you know, surveillance technology, do most people view WeChat as surveillance, but it's acceptable because of all the benefits? Um, is it forced upon them? So they don't really have another option because you mentioned cash, you know, in the U.S., we have cash, we have cards, and this is kind of what we accept. Yes, like Bitcoin, which is kind of maybe or Ethereum, maybe challenging the status quo. But but by and large, we kind of accept cash or credit cards because that's just kind of how we we were raised. And so over there, they went to WeChat on a win, but is it just yeah. accepted now? Oh yeah, I mean it's again. I think we get back to this idea though. I think people sort of feel like. Um, you know, if you're talking about the government being able to access WeChat, I think most Chinese people sort of feel like that is what it is. You know, it's always been that way. The government's always been able to get information when it wants it. And so that's how, that's how it goes. Um, you know, I think it's, but again, it's, you know, it's so convenient, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of explain this to an American who hasn't experienced life with WeChat, you know, but I was, even when I was working on, when I was like looking at surveillance, right. I was like writing a book about surveillance. I still had to use WeChat because it's just like, mm. it's amazing. Right. I mean, it's literally one thing on your phone. You could, you could erase everything off your phone, but WeChat and you'd still live a perfectly convenient life in China. And it's, you know, when I, I mean, when I first started, when I first moved to China, um, you know, it was a cash-based economy. They like, the, people didn't even have credit cards. Everything was cash. And it was this just immense pain in the ass. I can't even express to you how frustrating it was to live there. You know, like if you wanted to pay your electricity bill, you know, you had to go to the, you know, the post office or a bank and you had to wait in line for like, you know, a half an hour, an hour just to pay an electricity bill. Right. And you had to do that every single bill you got, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, those, those movies about life in a communist society where everyone's waiting in line on everything. That's what it was like. Right. And it was this, mm-hmm. it was a huge, you know, it was just such, and like, you know, if you wanted to buy anything expensive, people like buy cars with suitcases of cash. You know, it was just crazy. It was wild. It was crazy. And now it, that's it like and then overnight it completely changed. 
and suddenly you can do everything from the comfort of your couch. Um, and, uh, and so it's totally, it's really seductive. You know, I mean, you know, just imagine if you had one app that could do everything. Most, I think, I feel like most Americans would probably be like, yeah, let's just do it. You know, um, I mean, some people would be a little bit more suspicious and, you know, obviously want to protect their privacy, but I think a lot of, I think a lot of people would probably just sign up. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, as you talk, all the various things, you know, from health insurance to banking, to car insurance, to driver's license. And it's just like, people, we can't have something just to kind of collect all this information, make it easier. Um, And at the same time, you're, you're very quite right. You should be rightly concerned that you might get some kind of social credit system like China that's, that's being used against you. Um, So you mean, we've talked a little negative. Let's talk positives. You mentioned the, the traffic lights, stuff like that. Give me some other things that you found that you go, you know, Hey, listen, there are concerns on the surveillance negativity side, but, but here, if it can be done right, here are some of the benefits. We talk about WeChat, you can have it all in one spot, but, but more larger sweeping things that can really help society. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I mean, surveillance technology is, I mean, it is really useful. And this is, I mean, this is one of these things that, that, uh, that I think is like the conversation in the United States is a little bit stunted on this, right? Because I mean, Americans, we're all like, we all, we're like rugged individualists and we value our privacy and we're like kind of naturally suspicious of government peering into our lives. And that's just like all, and that's almost all Americans really. Right. And so I think we just, when we talk about these technologies, we kind of were like, Orwell, it's all terrible. Like it's big brother. We shouldn't even have, we shouldn't have any of it. Right. Um, but these, but the technology is good. You know, I mean, what, what you can do with data and, and, and AI now is, is really impressive. You know, it's things like, I mean, this is kind of wonky and maybe boring, but like, you know, figuring out how to parcel out, you know, healthcare uh, resources, right? Like you can do, you can collect data on people's health and you can sort of see when, um, you know, a health crisis is brewing about something or like a pandemic, for example, is brewing, right? Like you, if you can collect enough data, you'd be like, oh, these people, like there's all these people getting sick in this way, in this one area. Um, then, you know, if you have the right systems in place, you can go respond to that really quickly and head it off before it becomes a pandemic, right? Theoretically. Um, you know, but the, I mean, even like, and like if you kind of go down a lower level, you know, I mean, one of the things they do in China, one of the examples they always cite is finding lost children, you know, because faces don't, you know, faces kind of stay roughly the same, even as you get older, you know, like you gain a little weight or whatever, but like certain aspects of your face stay the same and you can sort of be identified, you know, someone could, you can feed a photo of a five-year-old into a facial recognition system and, and it will match a photo of that person 30 years later. Right. And so like, you know, you have people who, who've gone missing, who, like in China, they have a real issue with abducted children because of the one child policy. Right. Mm-hmm. So like they've, you know, they've found people who, who were abducted, you know, and that, which is a great, I mean, how, how do you argue with that? I mean, that's like, that's pretty amazing. Or, you know, people with dementia, you know, uh, criminals on the run, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, from a public security standpoint, I mean, if you talk to, to cops in the U S and I did, you know, talk to police and they, you know, they're like, man, this is like, they'll tell you like, you know, I remember talking to a guy in Anaheim at the Anaheim police department in, in Southern California. And he's like, look, we use the facial recognition system we have to catch a rapist. Um, you know, and, and like, and it would have taken us months to do it otherwise. And we, and like with this system, we did it in three hours, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, so there definitely are benefits. And I think that's the thing we got to figure out, right. As a, as a society, 
is how we balance those, right? And how we how we kind of maximize the benefits uh, and minimize uh, minimize all of the the negative stuff. Yeah, I think about um, in, in the West, um, cop shootings, right? And so the body cameras, and that's a new surveillance technology that's been introduced in the past five, 10 years that we're starting to get a glimpse of what happens. And sometimes it's quite clear cut that the bad guy was wrong. Sometimes it's quite clear cut that the cop was wrong. A lot of times it's not clear cut at all who was doing what. And we don't, and so in those situations, um, we're, I think if it's, if, if that small slice is handled properly, eventually the public can get to a spot to where they feel like the authorities are being surveilled <laughs> at the same yeah. level that we are and being held accountable. If that happens, yeah. you, you have a chance of building trust, but if it doesn't, if every time a cop shooting, you know, if, if 30% of them just make a number, uh, the videos lost, people will say, ah, okay, you're protecting your own. Therefore we don't trust it. And, and rightfully so, by the way. Um, but if every time you get it, but the, the other thing that's introduced, which I find fascinating is, is that a lot of times these videos aren't, clear <laughs> and so it's actually introduced an element of i'm not sure how you make a determination based upon this and so part of this surveillance process is that with more data sometimes what we might get on the public side that little bit more isn't actually enough for us to determine what's going on and it only enrages us more because you know we're drawing lines and we have just a very very small snippet and so um yeah. perhaps the state has more evidence and on a good bad or different but but we don't. And so it, it makes it more divisive, it seems. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, um, it's a really complicated question. And I actually think, I, you know, my conclusion in all of this is the answer is that we all just need to learn to embrace complexity, right? We need to learn how to live with complexity. I mean, everyone wants, we all want simple answers, right? I mean, there's just so much shit going on in the world, right? I mean, it's just like, it's just, you know, we got a pandemic, we have war, we have political division, all this, you know, everything seems so complicated and everyone just wants simplicity. And that's, you know, that's kind of what China's system offers, right? It's like, just leave it with us, you know, trust us. We got it. We got your data. We know what, you know, we, we know how to organize and engineer society. You just don't worry your pretty little head about it. Um, and I think, you know, the democratic response to that is to sort of, yeah, like I said, embrace complexity, um, transparency, right? Like, I think we just need, you know, like the, the main thing that, we need with these technologies is to know how they're being used, know how they work, how accurate are they? What are their problems? What are their biases? You know, how are, how are police using them? How are other agencies using them? Right. And so like something with like police body cams, you know, if there are sort of clear rules that, that are enforced around when those are released and all that, and, and it's consistent and you know that like, it's like, you know, if there are rules that say like police body cam, footage has to like it has to be recorded all the time and it has to be released within a certain period of time in a certain way and it always happens i think you start to solve a lot of issues right and it will like you said it will bring up all this complexity about all this ambiguity about how things happen right and there are always clear answers and there's going to be debate you know but i think as americans like our big problem right now i mean with surveillance certainly probably brought more broadly is that like we all want simple we all want simple answers and like you know we're kind of we need to sort of get back to being able to like debate things and, and have things not be totally clear all the time. Yeah. And that, that's part of the problem. You know, if I were to take part of this interview and put a clip out on YouTube or Twitter or wherever um, people could see a clip and they might surmise a lot about this interview based upon that clip. And the same thing happens in the wild. If, if there's a street fight in the wild and you see 
a man knock out a woman, we're all like, oh my gosh. The problem is, theoretically, the woman could have had the shotgun drawn three seconds before and he's, but we don't, we don't. And so we, we so it makes it hard because we want to rush to judgment because we see something so, so like yeah. terrible, but, but we, ha- we actually have to learn that we need that three, 10 seconds, 20 minutes, whatever it is before to kind of see what happens. It, yeah. and, and when people, when I've, I've said that people before, like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm like, no, 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 it actually does matter because it, it seems quite clear cut by the way this is cut, but theoretically, and if we want to be fair and just, we need to see what happened leading up to make sure that what we saw was a fair representation. And so that's part of this yeah. this surveillance thing is is trying to figure out what is going to be um, good evidence moving forward. And I think as a society, at least in the West, we're, we're we're starting to realize that maybe some of our old norms around DNA evidence and uh, trial evidence is probably not as reliable as we thought it was. So this is kind of a weird time to get this pushed into the into the conversation. So okay, so ten years from now. The West and China. So China, what's the conversation around surveillance? And in the West, what's the conversation around surveillance? So I'm going to start with China because that's easier. Uh, so China's leader, Xi Jinping, he just got um, a, new thir- a new term, new five-year term, which is unusual. It's sort of, um, you know, he'd already been in power for 10 years. His predecessor had 10 years in power. So he's kind of, he, he he played his hand and he's he's sort of essentially in power for life as long as he wants to be. I think at this point we have to kind of assume that anyway. Um, and his, you know, he, he made a speech right before he took this third term uh, a week ago. And in that speech, he used the word security. I can't, I can't remember exactly the number of times, but it was dozens of times, you know, uh, just national security, you know, domestic security, just security, security, security. That's his focus right now. And so, um, and technology, security and technology. And those things sort of kind of go hand in hand, I think, for for the Communist Party in China. So, you know, it's going to get, the, the surveillance state in China is going to get more sophisticated, more pervasive. Uh, like I said earlier, with COVID, they've already got it. So it's covering everyone now. Um, uh, my co-author, Lisa, she, she kind of, she looked into all of the patents that have been filed on, on, uh, computer vision, which is the area of, of, of artificial intelligence that covers stuff like facial recognition and half of the patents filed by Chinese researchers on computer vision were related to police uses of the technology. Right. So they're still, I mean, they're clearly, they are all in on, ma- on making these systems better and more sophisticated and more pervasive. Uh, so I think, you know, there's there's a little bit of resistance in China now because of COVID. I mean, people, are, I think, are starting to push back a little bit. But, you know, it's China. It's like the Communist Party has control and, and, and whatever pushback there is, it's going to be it's tough to see that really, you know, uh, moving the needle. The U.S. honestly don't know. You know, the U.S. is a wild card, right, because, you know, on the abstract level. It's a bipartisan. There's bipartisan. It's one of the few. One of the only issues uh, in the United States that unites Democrats and Republicans in, in Congress is that state surveillance is bad. You know, like everyone agrees that we don't want China. We don't want the Chinese model here. Everyone like on the abstract, like there's been hearing after hearing. Hold on. Do do they, though? <laughs> do they? What? I'm not sure that they actually I, I think that's far more. A, uh, when you think about the FISA courts and you think about. Um, I mean, how the CIA has been caught monitoring and I, 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 I question, I question the sincerity of the left and the right on, on how far they're willing to push the anti-surveillance state stuff. Uh, perhaps yes. not all, but 
No, no, I'm not, that's exactly, I mean, that was my next point, which is, oh, I think, sorry. Like, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 you're exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, I think um, that is the question. Are they really? And it's like, you know, so it's one thing in a Senate hearing, you know, you, you can have um, Jim Jordan and Nancy Pelosi both saying exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, but when it gets down to brass tacks, uh, what does that mean? Right. Like when you actually get down to regulating these technologies and who can use them and in what circumstances, um, then it gets really messy. And I think, and again, it gets back to that point that you raised, right? Whereas it kind of depends on, you know, if you're a regular American, you might feel differently now versus if a Republican was in the White House, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, you know, it's, 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 I honestly don't know in 10 years where the U.S. is going to be because uh, it's like American politics is so hard to predict. Um, you know, if you look at other democracies, it's interesting, you know, like Europe um, is extremely strict on this stuff. They've got a draft law um, in the works now that would ban the police from using real time, you know, uh, real time facial recognition or any real time sort of biometric tracking, you know, where they have a camera on the street that's just kind of like identifying people like that would be banned in Europe, um, probably. Uh, the UK is really is another really interesting example where they've got um, they have like a, a biometric surveillance commissioner. Right. There's a guy who's, who's an independent commissioner whose job is to make sure the government isn't abusing these technologies and they have a code of conduct and all of that sort of stuff. The U.S. has got none of that. We're trying to figure it out. The U.S. doesn't even have a privacy law. Right. So mm-hmm. um, we'll see how it goes. You know, I think one, you know, one interesting potential uh, inflection point for, for Americans might be um, around abortion because, now Roe versus Wade has been has been revoked. A lot of states are sort of implementing abortion bans and like and you know police can use in those states police can use they can they can go to Google and they go to other companies with warrants to sort of find out you know are women searching for uh, information about pregnancy or around mm-hmm. or about like abortion medication that sort of stuff and so you know you'll start to see it maybe in those states you might have a debate about how much of that is okay? You know, do we really want, you know, like should women be able to use a period tracking app without fear? You know, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, and these are all questions that I think we're just, I think Americans are just starting to kind of wrestle with. Uh, So 10 years, honestly, I have no idea. There's a book called the power of habit. And in that book, it's a few years old now, uh, I guess a decade old. And in that book, um, one of the stories is target was sending this guy his house uh ads for pregnancy for like baby stuff yeah 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 i was wild tunes up the the store manager it turns out it was his 16 year old daughter who was pregnant and so when you say these things um i think we intuitively know that if we talk about x we're going to see an ad on instagram facebook etc for for that product but to to realize that even the searches can be used to deduce where you're at in life Probably many people aren't thinking like in those like specific things, sure, but general broad sweeping things is like wow, okay. So, um, anyways, okay, I know we're up against the clock here, so thank you so much for your time. We're gonna link to the book in the show notes. Um, where else do you want us to send people to? Um, well, I mean the the uh, the book. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm at the Wall Street Journal. So, if you're interested in China, uh, I, I mean, I, I really do feel like we've got the best coverage of China right now. The Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal, please check us out there. Um, we've got the, we've got the book, we've got an audio book. Um, and, uh, I think that's, I think that's probably it. Yeah. And I see that you've retweeted Ling Ling Wei this morning. Um, uh, we had her, Bill Bishop, 
David Firestein and um, uh, Chris Fenton on a U.S. China panel oh, a few years ago. So I will link to that again in the show notes. She oh, was yeah. fantastic on that. Um, Ling Ling, so Ling Ling is a, yeah, she's a force of nature. She's one of the she's one of the reasons our coverage is so good. So yeah, definitely check that one out. All right, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Okay, there it is. Join the discussion at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for free, or if you want to support the show, that's where you can do it at. And we'll be back tomorrow.